Hi, I'm Chris Redmond. I'm the global lead of OTT Red, the OTT talent economy hosted by Red Holt. In today's OTT Spotlight podcast, you will hear an interview with a lady who I think is extremely special, not only to the sector that she is a part of as OTT and broadcasting, but also to her husband, her kids, the way that they've supported her throughout her career, the way that she moved from a magic circle media law firm into broadcasting and then elevated herself to the extremely heady heights of SVP of commercial partnerships at Discovery just creates a wonderful story. I know that Lydia is loved across the OTT and broadcast community, so I'm expecting that a lot of people will pick up on this podcast, and deservedly so. Lydia is an extremely sincere, authentic, disarming and inspirational lady. I truly hope that you will enjoy listening to this interview with Lydia Fairfax as much as I enjoyed recording it. Okay, so welcome to the OTT Red Spotlight podcast. I'm here today, luckily, with Lydia Fairfax at an exciting juncture in her career. I'm going to be exploring a range of different things about what got Lydia to the stage that she is at now in her career, the things that she thinks matters from an industry perspective, both locally and globally, and importantly, some of the things that make her the lady that she is, the mother, the wife, as well as the super successful career person. So, Lydia, welcome to to the OTT Spotlight podcast. Thanks, Chris. Absolute pleasure to be here. Very excited to have a conversation with you today. Well, I think you fit really well into the constellation of senior leaders that we've been lucky enough to attract into the podcast. So I think you're, we had Torve Moulton, who was the first lady, the first woman to do the yeah. podcast. She's head of talent attraction at Cinemedia. And it will be great to get perspectives of you, another a lady who has operated at a very senior level in an extremely large organisation as well when you take the different sizes of the planets in the solar system that is OTT and what discovery constitutes. We'll get onto all of that in a second, but first of all, I want to start off with the basic question. Tell us about you. Who is Lydia Fairfax? <laughs> this is always the hardest question of all, isn't it? This is the one where <laughs> Should be the easiest fabulous picture. But who is Lydia? I am um, a passionate Welsh um, a Welsh person, I'm born and bred. Um, I have lived, um, I lived here until I was 18. Um, frankly, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't wait to leave at that stage, but um, somehow the forces or uh, perhaps the Welsh husband um, drew me back in my, uh, in my early 30s. So I'd spent the, like, the 10 years in, intervening between that in London. Um, I'm, as, you, as you rightly say, I'm a, a mum to two kids. Uh, I've got a little boy, Harry, who's almost 11, and a little girl, Georgie, who is um, just turned seven. Uh, I'm married to a farmer. Um, my, my parents are actually um, both of, well, my, my dad's a farming stock. He became a livestock auctioneer. Um, so he, I used to spend a lot of time when I was younger with him, um, standing collecting um, auction notes um, and, and running those back and forth. So I uh, was working from a young age uh, and, then, and then was helping him in all of his jobs since then. I was really lucky, actually, to get into media um, because I, um, I was working, I was, I was at university in Birmingham studying law, um, absolutely hating it, to be quite honest with you, <laughs> and having a bit of a, a, bit of a crisis of confidence uh, in my second year when everybody was, you know, you start jumping onto the, sort of the train of the training contract summer placements. 
um, a bit nervous about that. Did a, did a few in London with some of the big, uh, the big five Magic Circle law firms. Didn't really feel like it was for me. And then, fortunately, whether from lack of judgment or probably a little bit of laziness, um, one firm that jumped out at me was a firm in Cheltenham who only required a CV and cover letter. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the training contract application forms for the, for the Magic Circle, but they go on for literally pages and pages. So after having done sort of 25 of these in a complete scattergun approach, to be quite honest with you, yeah. I was like, oh, thank God, just one that's a, a, a CV and cover letter. Yeah. So I boshed it off. Uh, went and had this interview. Met, the, met the, one of the senior partners there who was Welsh. Uh, and was um, in the media and IT side of the business. He was like, I love you. Come back. Can you come back tomorrow and meet the senior partner? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, so I went, I went back the next day and they offered me a training contract on the spot. Wow. And I was just so fortunate that it was a sort of a very small boutique law firm um, called uh, Wiggin, um, based in Cheltenham, uh, but with offices in London. And I spent the next four years there learning the kind of the, the beginnings of the media trade. Wow. Wait, uh, and let, then, let, and then pause, it went from there. Let's pause there for a second, because we'll get into your career in a second, Lydia. But I want to pick up on a few of those points. So I didn't know that your husband is a farmer. Yeah. So you've worked in big tech, global tech, kind of digital revolution type stuff. And then you've got, you know, something as traditional as that agriculture side of yeah. things, not, not just with your husband, but also, you know, from an early stage in your childhood. Yeah. How do those two things go together? Do you think you learn from him and does he learn from you? Or just do the two, do the two parts not cross really? No, look, I think it's it's a great question. Um, I've always actually felt I've had sort of almost sort of two halves of my life. Um, and it's actually been one of the key things that's been able to sort of keep me grounded and keep me actually able to continue working because that ability to sort of to, to, to work in a very full, full on high pressure job and then have that decompression of coming home where, frankly, people couldn't give a fig, you know, around you know, what you do, what your title is, how much money you earn. Yeah. All they're worried about is, you know, are we going to get this lamb out alive? Or, you know, the cows are out, you need to run out on the road and stop the traffic <laughs> so nobody gets over. Or, you know, it's raining, we haven't got the hay in yet. Those are the kind of things that keep my husband and my family, you know, occupied. Yeah. And, and obviously I came, I came from that upbringing. So it is lovely to go back home and to be able to sort of, to, to have that kind of decompression. And also it's meant that it has has afforded me the ability to have, I'd like to think, a bit of perspective because I love London life. I love going to London. I love travelling. Um, I'm a, you know, literally, I'm a, air miles are like my, one of the biggest things in my life. I chase air miles, <laughs> like, <laughs> like sweets, I suppose. Yeah. But um, it has allowed me to sort of, to remember that actually that there are more fundamental fundamentally important things in life than the latest restaurant in London, the latest theatre, which don't get, you know, don't get me wrong, I've Still massively enjoyed and get sucked into. But it does allow you that slight distance to be able to say, actually, you know, yes, that's great, but I could actually have a much simpler life should I need to. You know, I, we can live on a farm, we don't need as much money, we're, we're not tied to a massive, you know, golden handcuffed mortgage. Yeah. And that gives you optionality, which mm. I think is has been really important for me during my career and particularly when I sort of made a sideways step into the commercial side where actually it was quite a big punt at that time um, to take a role where I had no experience 
and you know for no more money but for a lot more responsibility and travel and to sort of think well I've got this this great support network at home which allowed me for the next two years to fly to Turkey every second week for two years yeah I I want to talk to you about that chapter of your career and what it's like what it was like for you working on a more international basis but there's a couple of things actually that strike me about that number one you know with the way that seasons are and the necessity of farming commitments working long hours and being away from the kids and you know maybe not being able to do this we quite often hear people in modern careers if i could call it that talking about you know wanting to be at home more and that sort of stuff so that was probably something that you were exposed to you know at a young age and now you know your family are exposed to but the other thing actually is work ethic i look at you know i live my house in the UK is in Essex in a very agricultural part of Essex and I look at the hours that those fields are being farmed and think wow I think I do long hours those guys are out there in all weathers like you say do you think there's something about your work ethic and the the DNA of grafting that comes from that as well yeah I mean yeah that's super insightful I think Um, yes I would say that that is probably one of the key drivers for me um you know, I'm not. Always, I'm not sure. Actually, it's always served me well. Um, frankly, because I think that actually, if you turn up and work as hard as you possibly can, no organisation is going to say, "Slow down, Lydia. Mm. Why don't you take the weekend off? Why don't you not log, log back on this evening after you put the kids to bed?" So it can sort of perpetuate a you know quite unhealthy work-life balance, and I certainly have found that for me over the last particularly over the last few years and particularly during COVID where that, that sort of distinction between work and home life, um, you know, was, was so much less defined. But, um, you know, it did get me where it got me, right? You know, you're absolutely right. My husband is an absolute, you know, workhorse. You know, he is up every day, you know, at the crack of dawn. Yeah. He comes home, he's absolutely exhausted and, you know, he's broken mm. um, every single day because he's, you know, his, his job is super physical. Mm. It's also very stressful in its own way. You know, if you, if the price of, of lamb or the price of beef is suddenly not what it was, if, you know, if you, if you have a poor crop of, of hay, you think, how are we going to be able to feed the, the cattle in the winter? So, I've, I've, I've drawn a lot from him, actually, in terms of his his work ethic and his sort of stoicism in terms of just um, knuckling down. And, and I had that growing up. You know, we, we didn't have downtime. You know, we, we weren't allowed to go out on a Saturday and hang out in the town with our mates. You know, we had jobs to do and then chores to do and then more jobs to do. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it does give you that sense of um, responsibility and, and graft and, and how important that is, I think, to sort of to get on. You mentioned that you've got kids and I'm sure you're probably instilling that uh, sense of the importance of having a, no, being down to earth, but having a strong work ethic as well uh, in those two. Yeah, yeah, they don't like me for it, but yeah. <laughs> they will one day, Lydia, they will one day. Okay, <laughs> let's move on, let's move on. So, you know, you've had a pretty spectacular career. I'd say that in the, you know, on the global horizon of organisations and indeed executives, you know, you stand out because you're a female executive in a well-known organisation, you know, and I know from the things that we've spoken about, you've been involved in some pretty exciting things recently and over the years. So yeah. talk us through the career that you've had, you know, how, how did you get this to the stage of being, you know, SVP level at Discovery? What was, what was the journey to that pedestal? Um, well, I mean, it's down to a lot of 
lot of other people, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, I have been extremely fortunate in my career um, to have worked with some of the best, you know, media execs in both the legal world and then, you know, more more um, more recently at Discovery. You know, I think one, um, you know, one example in particular is when I when I left London and I moved home to Wales, I um, I had my first baby, and um, I had a phone call from Discovery saying we've had a recommendation from your old boss at Oldswang saying that you would be a fantastic addition to our legal team. Would you be interested? And I said, look, I've moved back from London. I've got a four-month-old child. I would be interested, but there's no way I could commit to a five-day working week in London. Um, and and also, my husband's a farmer, so we're not going to be able to move to London. Um, would there be any possibility to consider a three-day you know, London week and a two-day work week from home? And, and really, it was down to the strength of the um, of the people that recommended me from Oldswang that my you know boss took a punt on me, and and I literally was the first um, the first lawyer, and certainly probably one of the first people at Discovery who was afforded the the sort of luxury of being able to work two days a week from home. Mm. Um, so I moved down into moved up to London, you know, w- w- sorry, moved up to Discovery for that purpose. Um, and then I spent the next five years um, in the, the legal team, moving up through, you know, through the through the levels. Um, but during that time, I I'd started to sort of share my sort of future ambitions with you know broader people in the company um, around what else I'd like to, I'd be interested in doing. And um, one guy that I sort of worked with very very closely um, offered me this opportunity to take a, a six month uh, maternity cover um, for the GM of um, Turkey, who was. Um, off on maternity. And I mean, Chris, literally the night I had that t- telephone call, all I could hear in my head was like, hell no, hell no, how nice can I be the GM of a, of a country when I've just been a lawyer for you know, so the last cool. years. But um, I took the leap and, you know, to be honest with you, rabbit in the headlights is, is definitely the expression that, that sort of comes to mind um, for the first sort of three or four months. But you know, luckily for me, um, the, the lady I replaced um, decided that she wanted to spend some more time at home. So I ended up doing a sort of two-year stint um, in, in Turkey and um, commuting there every second week, uh, Monday to Friday, and then one week working from home. Um, and we did some fantastic stuff. You know, we launched a second free-to-air channel out there, uh, which is probably one of the highlights of my career, actually, working with a really young energetic, enthusiastic team who were super talented, but, you know, there was nobody there above senior manager, you know, so uh, the way discovery is structured, you know, there's also then director, senior director, VP, group VP, then SVP. There's like five bands between me and anybody else in, in the business. But these guys were so talented and so passionate that really all they needed was, you know, an enthusiastic leader who was able to sort of see how to sort of bring the best out of them and to, you know, and to sort of get, to pull all of their various areas of expertise together. So that was, that was kind of my um, foray into the commercial world. What did you, um, just on that for a second, if you don't mind me asking, what did you think yeah, of working please. in Turkey? What did you learn about, you know, the culture, the environment, how different it was to the UK? You were there for two years, oh, right? Hugely different. Um, you know, we worked... Um, on the um we worked in, in istanbul and we were on the western side of istanbul okay. so it was you know more internationally focused um but we also did a lot of work with some of the more traditional turkish organizations the free to air organizations 
um, there was a lot of some interesting stuff that we had to manage during that time. It was only it was only um, two years after the, the coup in 2015, so it was very politically charged, and a lot of the um, more um, westernised TV stations were really struggling in order to um, sort of continue to have their licences, um, you know, kept in the market. Yeah. So we had to tread a very very fine balance between, um, you know, not about in terms of respecting the culture, the various different cultures over there, but also being true to the messaging that Discovery was, was bringing to the market. And I think we were, we were really fortunate that we had some very smart people there who, um, who helped with our reversioning teams, for instance, who would look at our content and, and work out whether or not it was appropriate for the Turkish market. Mm-hmm. And where it wasn't, we would either you know, not show that content or we would adapt it in, in order to be more culturally sensitive. Sure. So that was that was quite a, a steep learning curve for me, actually. I'd done something a little bit similar before with some Russian um, work that we'd done, but this was, you know, much more, much more sort of fully, um, much more sort of fully involved in that. Mm. But the one thing I would say is that actually there's a lot of really strong female leaders in Turkey. Mm. They have a lot of females, you know, significantly high up the, the food chain, which frankly surprised me there were there were some organizations where there would be um you know it would be very male um, dominated and you know quite a few uh, quite a few instances where i'd go along with our head of ad sales and they would direct the whole conversation to this man this manager level guy yeah. because they just assumed that he would be the more senior person in the room so that was quite an interesting dynamic yeah. but but I have to say that, frankly, there was a lot of female leaders out there and I made a lot of very, very good contacts um, and just found that sort of really embracing the market, really embracing the culture, spending time meeting these people, having lunches with these people, meeting their families, understanding how it all worked was was really key to um, developing that kind of um, the profile out there and also then, you know, working out what was the appropriate channel we wanted to launch and, and what would resonate with the Turkish community. So you got a call and they said, we want you to come back. How did that feel, leaving after everything you've just described? It must have been a bit hard to leave that, even though it would have been exciting to step into the next chapter. How did that, yeah. how, was that how was the bridge between those two chapters? Yeah, it, and it, it was hard. I mean, actually, for a little while, we did debate whether or not Rob would take a you know a sabbatical so to speak because Rob's dad's still a farmer um, and Rob's sister also works they, they have racehorses as well so she also helps with the training of the racehorses so we did consider whether or not we would do a sabbatical for maybe one or two years while the kids were still at that age and actually really you know throw ourselves into sort of Turkish life and move to Istanbul or you know on the outskirts but then this um the guy the guy james gibbons who had um put me forward for that role then called me and said will you come and join me in london and be my head of commercial for the uk team um so it's a big job that's what i do big job big job but um you know a really strong market for discovery and what turned out to be you know a fantastic opportunity because you know, unlike the majority of, uh, of times, actually the UK was the first market to launch Discovery Plus. We launched before the US. Because oh, really? we had this big that. deal with Guy. Yeah, yeah, we launched before the US. So the next sort of two years, through lockdown, when we were all working from home, yeah. we did this huge launch of, you know, of the sort of the flagship OTT product that Discovery has. Yeah. Um, and did a massive um, launch partnership deal with 
with Sky, with Amazon, um, et cetera. And, you know, it was such a fantastic time to be in the business and to be part of, of such a huge, momentous shift for Discovery. Because, you know, Discovery has been... Um, was, you know, frankly, a little bit late to the party um, in terms of the OTT shift because we still had this incredible linear, and still do, yeah. have this incredible linear business. And so there was a real kind of value um, judgment to be made about shifting potentially some of those eyeballs from linear yeah. to an OTT proposition. So the Welsh girl in Istanbul becomes the Welsh girl in London. <laughs> And you've got this amazing frontier, this digital frontier for such an iconic brand. I mean, I think if you ask most blokes what their favourite channel is, they'd go towards either Sky Sports or Discovery. You know, certainly that would be true for myself. What are the metrics that you use when you're trying to evaluate the success of the launch of something so new for such a well-established brand? How, How were you judging whether or not you were doing a good job when you launched that platform? Mm, yeah, that's a great one. Um, well, first of all, actually, for a long time, we did we did um, wrestle with whether or not actually we were going to be calling the OTT product um, Discovery Plus, right. because of course there is there is a challenge with that name. Um, obviously, it's got ninety percent global brand awareness, so it had a huge head start in terms of people understanding what content was on there. But then also that did that potentially could have done the, the service a disservice because. It obviously then did not reflect the breadth of the content. It didn't reflect the fact that Discovery owns Eurosport, so there would be Eurosport content. It didn't reflect that Discovery has a very, very strong female-led um, channel business with TLC, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a kind of a double-edged sword there in terms of would the brand resonance and the brand loyalty of something like Discovery extend into a market where a lot of people who aren't in the media industry don't know um, that Discovery owns all of these other brands and lifestyle channels, etc. Outside of that, so one of our sort of key metrics was 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 understanding the extent to which people would recognise the breadth of the content that was on offer. Mm. So that was a key one for us. Obviously, you know, acquisition and um, subscriber acquisition was a huge one, um, as was as was the reducing churn. And um, you know, we've done an exceptional job actually of, of being able to convert free trialists into paying subscribers, and then having lifetime value of that subscriber being you know into the sort of the the, the high months, which is a sort of a key that was always a key metric for us. Yeah. And also then, just in terms of consumption, the the kind of the fascinating. Um, the fascinating thing for, for me and also for all the people that worked on this product was the granularity of information that we got when you have an OTT service. Yeah. You know, I, when you think about it, when you have a linear channel, you're completely reliant upon barb data mm. and then you're completely reliant upon what data a broadcast, you know, a, um, a sky of the world wants to share with you in terms of what are the shows that resonate the most, you know, how long do people watch your content, what do they watch after they've watched a particular show, do they stay on, do they move into a different genre, are they binge watching, all of that type of content, all of that type of information and data we didn't have access to as a linear broadcaster. Yeah. But then in the OTT world, it's just a mine of information. Do you know, I mean, I've got, yeah, I, you've hit one of the topics that I'm really passionate about here around data and, you know, due yeah. to the IP transmission nature of OTT services. It's mind-blowing. And I think it's yeah. the, you know, I interviewed one of the podcasts that I did with, was with Geronimo McCannus. I um, heard it, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, 
uh, he's an inspirational guy about the fact that this is the liquid gold of the OTT age. You know, if you've got data, there's so much you can do. So much you can do. Uh, and I love that. And, you know, on, on, the, on the LinkedIn Live we're going to do some, we've got Mark Rawlins-Smith from uh, Conviva coming on as well. So he's going to have some really interesting points on this. But I can only imagine what that must have felt like in a company like uh, Discovery to think, guys, look at this data that we've got. What are we going to do with it? The level of data you get with um, with the OTT world, we have that direct relationship with the consumer. It's just, you know, yeah. it's, it's mind-bogglingly more. Yeah, I love it. But I want to ask you about what you think about the wider horizon now mm. of OTT providers, because obviously, although it wasn't that long ago, the, the complexion of the space has changed. And, you know, yeah. I hear different people of, re, you know, genuinely good points of authority to say, you know, it's becoming saturated or it's becoming more niche orientated. You look at what's happening, you know, and the prolific take up of mm. sports. You know, particularly mm. the recent Netflix Formula One and all of this sort of stuff, and DAZN and Delta Train. What's your opinion when you look across the whole horizon of what's happening at the moment? Well, you know, people, the, the, the media is circular, you know, and it's cyclical. So, you know, we've had this before. We had this, you know, oh, linear TV is dead, OTT is the future. Now we're sort of going into a Oh, OTT is dying or OTT is, is saturated and there's no space for anybody and people are only going to you know, stack so many so many apps and people don't have the time to look for the content they want to look for. I don't see it like that. Yes, the market is becoming busier, but I think there's been, you know, as you, as you will have seen with Discovery and Warner Brothers, you know, there is being some aggregation already. There will be more aggregation to come for sure. Yeah. I do believe that um, the strategy of having a kind of a broad range of content is a winning strategy. I think these, you know, the niche services are um, great if you're not looking to scale. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are really interested in a smaller uh, type of type of content, and there are some fantastic niche services out there that will serve that. But if you're wanting to be one of the sort of the big four or five streaming services, and I think actually the market can cope with that, mm. then breadth of content is going to be hugely important, as is accessibility and discoverability. You know, Netflix, you know, the big talk at the moment, you know, was never going to introduce advertising, and now they're talking about an ad-supported tier. Yeah. Discovery, Discovery Plus did this in the UK earlier on in the year. You know, access to our content at a, at a sort of a... A more affordable entry point with the ability to upgrade to you know to an up to an ad free tier and or to sports tiers. I think that kind of optionality is really key. Um, I also think that a key element is around um, discoverability, and I've banged on about this for years now in, in many sort of um, talks I've done and also internally about the importance of discoverability, about good you know about good metadata about good recommendations and search engines and um, you know there are there are some companies out there who are doing a great job of, of trying to kind of amalgamate some of that mm. data together to be able to offer a service whereby you can you know if, if you want to watch something you can type it in and then it will tell you what services it's on because yeah. that I think is actually the, the bigger blocker for people rather than subscribing to you know more than one or two or three services because I think people will build their own TV pack, you know, yeah. they will build a pack which might be based on a, a linear, a small linear TV package potentially, um, and we still see we still see huge take up for that for you know the discoveries network of channels, huge take up of linear. 
But then I think people will complement that with additional um, OTT services, which they may, you know, churn in and out of as the year goes on. And people, I think, will become much more savvy as to, I'm going to take this service for X number of months because I want to watch this and that, mm. and I want to binge watch, you know, these shows. And then I'm going to have a break, and I'm going to then take potentially Amazon Prime, or you know, or Netflix, or Disney Plus, or Paramount, or you know, or, or any of these Apple TV and all of these services. So. I personally think that there is huge growth in the market, but I think the days of subscribers at any cost are gone. You know, that is no longer going to be a meaningful metric for Wall Street. You know, these sort of subscribers that we're, you're effectively paying a huge acquisition cost for, yeah. but you're actually not retaining them or you're not earning any money from them, that can only go on so long you actually have to then actually earn money. So the shift from subscribers at any cost to a smaller number of subscribers that are highly engaged and are paying for your content on a regular basis, I think will be the bigger shift going forward. Mm, I think that's a fantastic summary. I, just to pick up on that last point as well, Lydia, I think that you know subscribers at any cost or customers at any cost, if you wanted to be agnostic of sector, it's true for the thin end of the wedge, isn't it? When a sector is evolving and really emerging, uh, you know, I definitely feel as though that's got a shelf life. And I feel as though that shelf life expiring is beginning to become evident in the nature and the dynamic of the market at the moment, you know, how heavily leveraged and invested some organisations are and the necessity to make a return on that investment, I think we can see affecting the way that they're running the business. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think it will be really interesting when... You know, because companies at the moment still have different ways of defining their subscriber bases. You know, like you know, calling a paying sub um, a paying sub if they have just paid, say, you know, minimal access fee, or is a paying sub where you've done a hard bundle with um, a, an operator and they're effectively paying you a, a low, you know, pence per sub. You know, is that a paying sub, or is a paying sub also a sub that's on a um, on a free trial. Um, so all of these different metrics are becoming more scrutinized now, I believe, in terms of um, what people are understanding to be paying versus, you know, free trial subs or subs that are, are potentially, where you don't even own the direct relationship, for instance, like in an ingest model. Yeah, I think the due diligence that private equity companies will be doing and organisations as they um, integrate, you know, the M&A activity within yeah. the market, all of these sort of things will need to become more consistent as a metric of evaluation for the multiples associated to the buy price of a company, yeah. I think. So Great. it'll be fascinating. What, what, you know, to take a different tangent, we touched on this a little bit earlier, you talked about strong women leaders, female leaders that you've met in Turkey and, you know, maybe some of the experiences you've, you've had. I've got a theory that in now, I've worked in telecoms, i worked in telecoms for a long time. It was a male-dominated environment, and there's so many yeah. reasons for that. You know, yesterday I spoke to a chief executive in our sector about this, and he said, Chris, I fully embrace diversity and inclusion, but it's so hard when you're moving at the pace that our sector does to try and reflect the kind of levels of gender diversity and ethnicity that you would like when you need to fill jobs you know i wish there was a magic magic answer but it's going to take a few generations for these things to level out what's your take on that lydia as somebody that will have recruited a number of people and, and will have been through the recruitment process for big jobs as a mm. female it's a tough one chris it is a tough one because you know i i i was going to say that you know, that it's an easy thing to say that actually, you know, you, you, 
it's going to take a couple of generations to, to work through it. Um, because if you want to find good talent, you'll always find it. But frankly, last year I was recruiting for, for my team and I had a, you know, I had very, very few female candidates, not even good female candidates. I had very few female candidates at all. And I think that there is, there is a stage in the industry where people, you know, females particularly, um, will reach a certain level and then that will unfortunately potentially coincide with um, the years in which they wanted to have children. And because of the way that, that a number of the big corporates have been set up, it hasn't facilitated that ability for them to stay in the industry in the kind of level that they want to stay in. You know, there's, there is still very, very little part-time work. There is still very, very little... Um, well, remote work is becoming, you know, much more of a thing now. But certainly, you know, I think it's, it's, it's almost impossible to find, a, you know, a senior level part-time role or a role where there is some sensitivity for the fact that um, you might have childcare, you know, obligations either side of the day. And that goes for female or male. You know, it doesn't... It's not... Um, it's not, it's not um, limited just to female-only problem. Um, but, you know, at Discovery, for instance, we had 52% females in the exec level. So from direct level above, in the UK, we have 50% females, which was really strong yeah. for um, media. And, um, and Discovery has always had a sort of a real, um, you know, has, has a real sort of pedigree for, for hiring, um, hiring based on talent rather than based on, you know, gender or anything like that. But... I think it, the problem is just more endemic. It's it's sort of it's because of the fact that I think that as a, for a lot of females, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking to females now, you know, given I am one myself, it is more difficult as you move up the chain to be able to give that time and that commitment and that passion for a role and for a company when you also have competing interests at home potentially. Yeah. I, as I shared with you, I'm super fortunate that you know my mum lives really close by she actually lived with us for the two years that i was in istanbul um well, she lived with my husband yeah in the not much sense of the word um and you know and i have a husband who yes works extremely hard but is a lot more flexible in terms of ability to pick up from school and take take kids to after school club activities but if you don't have that then one of the one of a couple or if you're a single mum or you're a single dad or you just don't have that kind of um that resilience and that backup from family members being close by, I think it, it has it has sort of made its way through the industry. And so it is really difficult, I think, for there to be those those jobs and those opportunities if you have um, had to take those kind of sidesteps. It, it, you know, it's and I, and I would really encourage people to sort of like step back in and, and for companies to sort of see the benefit that females, you know, at a, at a certain level can bring to the organisation that, you know, different view of, different way of thinking, different um, skill sets. And it's really important that we get it. It really is. Do you think it comes down to the creative, uh, a creative latitude and maturity of leaders? Because ultimately, if you've got somebody at the top who says, hey, look, this woman or guy is absolutely fantastic, but they're a single parent. You know, if we afford them the latitude to come in and work more in the way that they want to, you know, we engender massive loyalty with that employee, that asset, if you wanted to call it that. And we get someone on, you know, at whatever level of our business that brings such a distinct equity of experience to, to what we need. But if you haven't got the leader that's got that frame of mind, why would and note the, the opportunity for other people to emulate that type of thinking doesn't exist, does it? No, no, that's true. And, you know, 
a big shout out to, to my hiring um, boss at Discovery, you know, a lady called Hester, who, as I shared with you earlier on, Hester Wheelie, um, she's, she's the one that took the punch. She's the one that persuaded um, our, you know, our people culture team and persuaded her boss in the US that it was worth, you know, pursuing me, um, somebody who was only going to work three days in London and the other two from home versus another candidate who was based in London and could have worked, you know, five days a week. Um, you know, I've therefore always been fortunate enough to be able to um, offer that same flexibility to people in my team. And I think it is really important to do so. Um, and, you know, I think there are there are a lot more forward-thinking people in the industry these days who can actually see that the benefit that, um, that, that, that sort of lack of cookie-cutting um, execs can bring to a role. But, it, you know, it, it does still need to, to trickle through further. Mm. What are the things that you're looking forward to in the next couple of years? You know, you're at an exciting point in your career. You know a lot, you've got a lot of domain expertise about this sector in different regions and globally. Mm. You know, in those two categories of your life, what are the things that you're looking forward to in the next couple of years? Well, as you alluded to at the beginning of the call, um, I've just taken a break. So I've just finished my role at, um, at Discovery, or more correctly, Warner Brothers Discovery now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to the next couple of months of um, reacquainting myself with my kids um, and having some proper family time, um, you know, going on holidays, just spending time with the kids. Summer holidays obviously are coming up. So that for me is the sort of the, the key priority for the next couple of months. Um, and then from a career perspective, um, I'm excited. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, and I shared this with you when we spoke last week, Chris, massively apprehensive as well. You know, it's a big, big move to, you know, voluntarily walk away from an organisation, particularly, you know, when I've been out for 10 years and, and have nothing but the highest regard for, particularly the people, you know, who are brilliant. Um, so it was a huge decision to move away from that. But... I'm looking forward to, to doing something different, to having, um, to using my expertise in this in this environment, um, you know, working on new products, bringing products to market, the type of the new startup organisations, that's the stuff that makes me feel very passionate about the future, is being able to make a difference and to be able to um, be able to sort of lend my expertise in, in different areas and, and just see where the market goes. And also one thing that from a more personal perspective that, that I'm working on and I'm speaking with some um, some uh, further and higher education colleges down here in Wales is accessibility to the media industry generally because there are, um, you know, I was really fortunate, right? I mean, I went to a private school. Uh, my parents, you know, were fortunate enough to have received some inheritance which meant that they were able to, to fund me and my sister and brother through private school, which was a huge, you know, huge advantage uh, growing up. Um, I was also fortunate enough that my parents were able to support me to go away to Birmingham University because, you know, they were they were able to pay for my accommodation and to give me some money to spend, you know, whilst also when I was working in, in the summers. And a lot of people don't have that. Um, and a lot of people don't have that ability to be able to take an unpaid internship in London with a big media organisation or even, you know, afford the train fare to go to interviews in London or to, you know, to spend a week in an Airbnb trying to do some work experience, unpaid work experience. And there is so much of that because media is seen as sexy and a lot of people want to get into it. And don't get me wrong, it is. It's really fun. It's a great environment to work in. You're talking about products that people know. Mm. Um, it's really interesting. But 
is actually can be really difficult for, for people to get into. So as I said, I'm working with some, um, a friend of mine um, is the vice principal at a further education college um, in Neath Talbot, so near near to where I grew up. Um, and I'm working with her and, and hopefully a couple of other organisations as well to to just to do some um, some coaching and to affect some introductions with some of the media organisations in London to see if we can level the playing field a little bit and bring some you know some further accessibility to. Uh, to those people who would like to work in media but don't necessarily have the contacts or the um, the means to do so. There can't be many people on the face of this planet that can so confidently navigate Istanbul, London and Nice with the same type of uh, fluidity that, uh, that you clearly do. <laughs> look, look, this is my last question for you. I've loved this conversation, by the way, Lydia, but here's one for you. If you think back to that little girl following your dad around the farm and the auctioneering and all of the lessons that you learned there about hard work, business, entrepreneurialism, you know, and, and then your education that you've just touched on, fantastic education, the, the jobs that you had, the legal training, you know, the complexion of your life has been quite fascinating and extremely compelling. I'm sure there will be other people listening to this and thinking, wow, I could learn a lot from that lady. But what advice would you give to the younger you? Be kinder to yourself. That would be my key advice. I have a quite vicious inner critic that, um, you know, don't get me wrong, has driven me to where I've got to, but has always been quite negative in terms of its feedback about myself. Um, And I think being kind to yourself um, and also I think the other thing that would be super important is is to be vulnerable, but also to to back yourself. Um, I've spent so many moments in my career. I know, like, the way you've painted it now, it sounds fabulous even to me, but, um, you know, there have been huge moments in my career where I've had massive self-doubt, where I've had huge imposter syndrome feelings, where I felt that, you know, literally I'm going to get caught out tomorrow. Someone's going to say, you know, who the hell are you and what are you doing in this role, you know? And I think talking about that, um, owning it, um, and, and sort of being able to share that with people who are more junior than you and and not just present this super successful view of yourself so that people realise that actually you can, you can get these senior roles, even if you are crippled sometimes with massive self-doubt and you look at a JV and you think, you know, God, there's no way I'd be able to go for that job. And then you realise it's the job description of your own role. Yeah. You know, that's happened to me before when yeah. I've looked at something and thought, oh, I, could, I can't do it. I haven't got half those skills. <laughs> and it turns out that's my job. <laughs> so, you know, it's about, I think, backing yourself and being kind and then also, you know, helping others too. I think it's really important to, to give. Um, one of the things I think is that one of the biggest things I think has helped me in my career, I, I'd like to think, is that, I am very aware about attributing um, value and worth and, rec- and recognition to those in my teams who deserve it. You know, shouting out to people who, if you're if you're having to be the one that presents something because of just the way that the matrix might work, that you still call out the people in your team that did all of the hard graft. Because uh, there's been plenty of times in my career when that hasn't happened to me and it's very dispiriting. And I think doing that um, also stands you in really good stead. Lydia, I hope that you feel as though this has been an opportunity to give an, an accurate and, uh, you know, 
an accurate portrayal of your life and your career. I have to say, I feel like it's been a disarmingly powerful portrayal of your career. I think you've spoken with incredible, uh, uh, incredibly genuine. I feel like it will be inspirational. I found it inspirational listening to your career story. And the other thing that I would say is that I wish you absolutely 100% head and heart the best of luck in the next chapter of your career. I think that you're at a springboard moment and um, you know maybe even some of this dialogue might help you regroup in your own head and heart about exactly the value that you represent. But Lydia Fairfax, Thank you very much for being a guest on the OTT Spotlight podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's been a total privilege. Okay. Wow. I don't know what you think, but that is an interview with a lady that is an asset to her family, the sector that we work in, the organisation that she's just spent 10 years at, Discovery, doing some absolutely amazing things and she's on the market at the moment as she talked about in the last piece of that interview so Lydia Fairfax I am 100% sure would be an asset to any organization in the broadcasting OTT or actually even the technology space with her skills that she acquired in the general management and then senior leadership roles at Discovery. The next interview that we'll be releasing in two weeks time is with Andrew Cross, the new chief executive of Grass Valley. An amazing guy, somebody who also talks very openly in his interview about his relationship with his family, the chapter that he spent for 23 years at Newtech, and amazingly, how he talks about being one of the first people on the planet to actually undertake the activity that we now call streaming when he was at Newtech. It's a really great interview, and I really, really hope that for those of you that spend your time listening to the series that we've crafted with OTT Red from these exceptional people, not just thought leaders within our space, people and the story of their lives is inspiring and useful to you. Thanks for listening to the OTT Red Spotlight Podcast. I'm Chris Redman, the global lead at the OTT Red Proposition, the OTT Global Talent Economy.